Welcome to the Aggregate Podcast, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the founder's journey, the disruption of venture capital through the optimization of team. I would say start with just a, a quick background and how it led into Kinetic slash Wendell. And then I will, I will kind of jump on the other side and you can kind of ask me some questions and we'll go back and forth. We'll just start with kind of your, cause your story is crazy enough as it is. So my name is Brad Zapp and I'm currently the managing partner of Kinetic Ventures co-founder. And I'm also the co-founder of a technology company called Wendell. And I've been a founder uh, my whole my whole life, only recently have people turned to call me an investor, but I really just wanted to be a banker my, my whole life. My dad, my original mentor, a uh, person that obviously I love, but I respect very much, he was a banker, and but the world had other plans for me, and nobody offered me a banking job. And I ended up, you know, going down the, the finance path, which truth of it is, I fell in love with statistics uh, when I was first introduced to it. And this leads into Wendell, but I, I fell in love with statistics at the University of Kentucky. And I uh, wrote a predictive algorithm, a regression analysis around a passion of mine, which was baseball. Anyways, my algorithm was a little bit different than the Moneyball movie. I really focused on starting pitchers. But I also wrote mine in 1997, which is four years yeah. before the kid from Yale. Anyways, had the Reds for example, followed my algorithm, it would have told them in 1998 to go get John Smoltz and Tim Hudson. And had they done that, they would have had two linchpin Hall wow. of Famers. Right? Yeah, totally. But I never got to commercialize that idea, and I ended up into uh, finance and co-founding a federally registered investment advisory practice. And we served the uh, mass affluent and affluent marketplace. We did really well. And uh, because my partners were, were awesome, they eventually, as we grew the firm, I wanted to do something else as the angel investing and, and the idea of venture capital sort of came into my sphere. Mm-hmm. So I was able to exit that company and then I uh, launched Kinetic. And from there, you know, I noticed sort of some of the problems that investors face, particularly in the early stage investing and just sort of how archaic the venture capital model was compared to the public capital markets. Mm-hmm. And that's where I like leaned back into my, you know, history. And I was like, oh my God, I think we can moneyball this. And moneyball manifested itself through our tech company called Wendell, which I didn't even mean to be a tech company. It literally started uh, between me and a buddy who worked um, at the Cincinnati Reds Mm -hmm. on a napkin. And I got him drunk in my kitchen. (laughs) Nice. And we signed a letter of intent. I said, look, I want a Moneyball VC. He's computer science, data analytics guy. Got it. I said, can you help me build this? Do you want to help me build this? I think he was so sloshed, he he couldn't answer. So I took it as a yes. And that was probably in 2017. Okay. We started building uh, Wendell. And today it's fully functional. And we're on our way to... Moneyball and VC, and which most of the world thinks we're crazy. Did you start? Did you start with an investment thesis first, or did you start building the tool Wendell first? Like, what? How did you think about which one came first, or did they come together? Both come together at the same time in terms of building. You know, being a builder of something like this, and for you know, for anyone listening, the Wendell tool is. A, you're a much better person to explain. Just what attracted me to it was I see the same. I believe one of the hardest, if not the most difficult part in angel, VC, venture capital, or 
is really the people you're betting on. And I think that, you know, it's a more money has gone to die by choosing the wrong people. And I always, one thing I really like about Wendell and I truly believe is that it's never, it's never the risk that that's obvious that fucks you over, right? It's never that risk. So as you're doing due diligence on a deal, the thing that will, will sink it is not on that paper typically. And I think that's one of the genius parts about building Wendell and being able, and I think then the secondary benefits of, and maybe they're primary benefits, but being able to neutrally screen founders. So no weighted bias to that. There's no, you know, there's, it takes away any way to systemically be racist, judges, prejudice. Like you're just looking at profiles. They're not talking about who those profiles are. Uh, So to answer your question, we definitely had an investment thesis first. And Wendell was built out of the problem of the way current venture capital was done that we thought couldn't possibly execute, you know, against that. And to your point, but part of our investment thesis, in fact, part of any uh, VC or angel funds thesis that we had talked to was that people matter, you know, and and if you talk to different VCs or, or different angel funds, you know, almost all of them would have, you know, team as one of their top three or four items that are important. But a funny thing, when we were building Kinetic and we were learning from, you know, we we joined six different angel groups, invested in another VC, a couple accelerators, and everybody would say, team, team, team. But if you looked at the diligence or the questions that they would ask, we only really saw two or three types of questions. You know, you had the financial questions and you had the market size questions um, and you had the product questions. Sure. But if team was 50% importance, why was it zero percent of the questions? Yep. I think the answer is maybe they just don't pay industrial psychologists enough. Well, that's for sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Or, or we get those types of questions, and I thought that was that was fascinating. That if we could solve that, then we could probably you know use that data in a very valuable way. So if you think about the pitch and how broken the pitch is from receiving information yeah. to help make an investment decision, you, you have these founders who are typically super passionate about their idea. They're coached and coached and coached and they practice and practice. They practice and they get up in front of you. You've never met them before. And then they present this opportunity and your brain is hardwired Mm -hmm. within the first 90 seconds to love it or hate it. And anything you do after that is immediately biased. And we just didn't think that was like super helpful because some people, admittedly, particularly social, attractive, mm-hmm. male, sure. they do better in those environments, particularly when you're presenting to largely white male audiences yeah. than, say, minorities and, and females. Absolutely. And so your the capital allocation gets all backwards. And, of course, this is supported by data where you can see that, you know, pick the numbers, whether it's 88% or 92% of all capital goes to all white male teams, even though their failure rate's roughly 65%. To me, that just didn't make any sense. No. So we wanted a way to figure out who are you inside and who are the people on your team? Mm -hmm. Are you hardwired to be successful at the task at hand? Because entrepreneurship journey is painful. Really painful. That's right. Oh, yeah. And it's not for everybody. No. And it has nothing to do with IQ. Nope. So we started building this you know, industrial psychology, science-based system to track all things team and turn them into data points that we could track over time to see if it matters. And so 
that we really just built Lindell to solve this this problem that we were having, um, and we knew we were having it, but we saw it widespread in the whole industry. So, was we what was your what was the date of your first transaction ever? Yeah, for, through the Kinetic Wendell. Oh, through Wendell. Yeah, I think I'd know this. I kind of do know this. It was April, April of two thousand and eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so how did your deal? Did you start it in April two thousand eighteen? How many deals did you do in eighteen and nineteen? Or just ballpark? Okay. Uh, I would say in two thousand eighteen, I believe we did fifteen to eighteen deals. Okay. Or maybe a dozen post April. Let's yeah. say. Uh, through Wendell. And then in 2019, I believe we did 25. Okay. And then 2020? We did, I believe, 19. Okay. Got it. And so what were the, what learning takeaways that you, did you have in 2018? Or sort of what was the evolution of learning uh, from a high level? Well, that we weren't wrong. Right. I mean, I, I can, you know, I don't, I don't have to jump on the hey, we've totally cracked the code. I hope we're lifelong learners. But the, the first learning we have is that people get into entrepreneurship or, or solving the, the problem that they see in an industry for all kinds of different reasons. And it's a myth or a mistake to think that everyone's a, what I'll call an enterpriser or a natural born leader. Yeah. And that can be problematic as the company grows. And that's really where you're gonna where you're gonna see it. So the first thing that we noticed just by profiling people, what blew our mind, so we profile people off the top of my head into 22 different profiles. All right. And there's this thought process, I think, by people not in the ecosystem that, well, everyone that's out there being a founder, CEO founder, doing a startup, is this enterprising, risk taking, whatever. No, no, they're not. Out of the 22 profiles, the largest profile is yours. It only represents 14%. So 86% of the people are not like you. Hmm. And if you look at the enterprising profiles, the disruptors, accelerators, problem solvers, and strategists, and visionaries, outside of the strategist category, the highest in the others is 4%. Wow. If you add it all up, you're somewhere into like, I don't know, 25%. And so if we take that at face value, then we would say maybe there's 75% of the people that are up there, you know, trying to raise funds, just have the deck stacked against them for this endeavor a little bit. That's our hypothesis. But we just, the whole, you know, every profile has been represented, all 22. Everyone's got at least 2% allocation. So there really is a diverse population. And when I mean diverse, I mean by your DNA, your behavior profiles, not by your skin color, gender, mm-hmm. anything like that. And that, that was the first thing where we were like, oh, my God, we actually can slice and dice people in the data points. Because if everyone came back, you know, a strategist, yeah. well, then we were dead from day one. Right. No, absolutely. You'd have zero parity across the different profiles. And, yeah, that would have been completely outweighed. I would say, you know, so I guess... Thinking through the lens of Wendell, I should say, thinking about Wendell through the lens of just the founder journey, I think one of the things we first talked about was that wasn't it wasn't at least obvious to me that something like Wendell would thrive in Boston, San Francisco, New York, it, that it was really a tool that it seemed like you had to incubate outside of the traditional VC big markets. And how do you guys think about that and, and sort of you know, really, who are who is that target 
founder from a from a, just a demographic perspective, or just from the where they live perspective? Well, I'll start by saying I have no perspective on the valley. Got it. So well, I never even crossed my mind on whether it would work in the Bay Area, in the Valley, uh, New York City, or Boston. In fact, one of our investment pieces was that the people that are doing well there, we couldn't compete there. And so good for them and well, however they're doing it. But we were going to compete in rest of country. And so if you think of the United States, let's do the Bay Area and the Valley. I think off the top of my head, it's roughly 200 square miles. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the traditional model works really well. You hang a shingle. You say, I got $2 billion. Come see me. And the founders and the VCs are all in close proximity. But if you think of rest of country, it's like 2 million square miles. So, and we're reaching places like your hometown of Boise, yeah. uh, our hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio, or it, Atlanta, St. Louis, Columbus, Ohio, Washington. It's very spread out. And so that means that not only do we have the problem of finding the deals, but the deals would have a problem finding us. Mm-hmm. So our hypothesis was simple. The founders, even though the process is different, they would do it. Yeah. And the truth is they do. Roughly 45% of the people that we cold connect to actually not only open accounts, but complete accounts. That conversion rate's really good. Wow. And then think of where the world has been pre-COVID, where we all could get together. Right. As soon as COVID hit, our numbers spiked by 100% mm-hmm. when the conversation amongst VCs was, hey, how do you how do you ingest deals you know, virtually or hey, do you think you'll ever do a deal without meeting the founder? Hmm. I'm on all these different boards and yeah, chat yeah. rooms and emails. I'm thinking to myself, will I ever do a deal without meeting a founder? That's the only deals we do. I yeah. wonder if I'll ever do a deal meeting the founder right. first. Yeah, what would that be like? So COVID hits and it turned us from quacks to thought leaders. Yeah. And I feel bad being saying like, oh, COVID was super helpful because I know how super bad it is right. from a health standpoint to America. But from a business standpoint for what we were trying to do, anything digital and online was immediately accepted and it was just fascinating to yeah. watch i think that you everyone can agree on that one thing that for sure happened during the covid was that there has been a change in consumer behavior and just a change in the way and the nature of how a lot of businesses conduct themselves and i think that what you're saying is that that conversion fed right into what you were doing pre-covid that what didn't that was it was easy to get a lot more lost in your way of thinking because everyone was still doing their pitch nights and their in-person meetings. And, and, and a lot of VCs really depend on the you know experience and insight and sort of lens that a traditional manager would apply to VC. I mean, I think that's why you have key man clauses. That's why you have, you know, they're really, uh, the, the LPs are investing behind one or two people and their ability to spot trends and spot people and, and sort of and then value add by applying ecosystems and different kind of gimmicks. I always call them value adds. And I think what happened for you guys was just that it changed and it put you it put you in, in the path of the trend where before you kind of were getting lost in sort of the beginning of it. Yeah, there's and we're not alone. And there's some really quality VCs out there that even if their methods are a little different or even if their categories are a little different, but digital online data-driven, AI-driven VC is here to stay. You know, we've had an opportunity to collaborate uh, with Brightside Capital, uh, Circle Up. You know, we were, we've not collaborated yet, but we're aware of some of the good work that Social Capital is doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I plan 
hopefully to personally invest in one or all of them yep. uh, as well and, and share and collaborate. But I love what they're doing. And, and you know, I think the rise of the digital VC is here. Yeah. Let's switch it again back to like uh, the founder perspective. And I think you and I have had, uh, given what you just said about Wendell, our relationship and the way we met was anti-Wendell. <laughs> it was really anti-Wendell. And I, it had to be one of the more uncommon routes that founders have, have beaten to your doorstep. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I can't remember, what was the, and I remember the rest of the story, but what, <laughs> what, how in the world did the inbound come it, to us? What happened? I was talking with a, a local patent attorney who, oh, who, oh, who yeah. okay. has a good judge of people and within a couple conversations put, linked us up and I, it was around the behavioral part. And, and I had had my crazy journey, a uh, homeless founder at one point, yeah. sold a small company, was writing freelance strategy for Morgan Stanley, moved to New York. And, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted, I think if I thought if I had worked with 250 companies, I would have a proprietary insight and hopefully proprietary deal flow. And so right around that 250 mark, I started, uh, my wife and I moved from Sun Valley to Boise and uh, I wanted to then apply that lens to flyover founders. So I wanted to, you know, in some ways I wanted to contribute to some of the middle class problem by, you know, using what I had built and what I had that kind of with me and applying it to a founder who I believed in in a company I thought that was worth it. And so that was Killer Creamery. But as everything is with me, and I think everything is you, it's always a lot more complicated than that. And so, the, you know, we really met on, it was a crazy first couple days. <laughs> yeah. I would, uh, yeah, I don't, I was, I was, I was drawn to the opportunity because I believed in what you're doing. I believe that this problem, at least in my opinion, would be solved in a place like Covington, Kentucky or Cincinnati area because of, for obvious reasons um, that you, are, you're not going with with the traditional VC culture. You're certainly not a follower of that. But yeah, yeah, it was one of the better uh, one of the better experiences that I've ever had. And unfortunately, a lot of my best relationships always start out with some weird, you know, somewhat tumultuous story. Well, you come out and and you had originally, I think the concept was around okay, maybe this Wendell platform could create this uh, across-the-country network of venture partners or venture funds or, you know, whatever, and and Wendell could be the common link. Even if we build companies differently, at least we have that data to understand, well, this is how Matt builds companies or this is how Kinetic or this is how XYZ firm, you know, know, builds companies or this is the type of founders you like. This is what I like, but, but we could share in this, you know, proprietary, you know, deal flow. And but and then it shifted though yeah. to where you brought with you one of your companies, right? Yeah. And so you you had successfully <laughs> bypassed I bypassed Wendell altogether, uh, you know, which we got you back into. But you had brought out you know one of your one of your companies to Killer Creamery to you know showcase, yeah. and you know it doesn't hurt that we're in the backyard of Kroger. No, and so you know we'll, we'll work on that. But <laughs> you you came out, and uh, so then. We got sidetracked, and then we got back into the the doing the deal, and came back out. Yeah, um, and so, but one of the things, and which we did the deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, it worked. We 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 were the one. Wendell, we, we were the. Oh yeah, well, you're right. We it wasn't an altogether complete sidestep. You made us. We still had to go through the process. Well, I was fascinated, honestly, with so there's like if we, my opinion, if we look at you and me, and 
from my lens, you get energy from being hands-on with founders. Very much so. And you get a lot of energy, and and that energy manifests itself in more successes. Yeah. So then the founders, you know, they, they get a lot in return. I don't get any energy. While I like helping founders, I do it in different ways. And I'm a very macro. Mm-hmm. I, I like being completely hands-off. But I see the value, particularly because I don't do what you do. Right. And I know that I want some hands-on people on my team. You've met one of my other sure. guys on my team, Alex Burkhart, since then. But I wanted to see what Wendell could do in your hands. I'm, and so that was the big fascinating, so, okay, so you're hands-on, but what if I give you this tool, this new, you know, yeah. bat? Mm-hmm. You know, could you hit it farther? Mm-hmm. And the j- jury's still out, but that's what we're doing together yeah, now. Absolutely. But I think the funniest part of the story is the people need to hear. Oh, yeah. Because you you fly out of some nowhere city called Boise. Yeah. Sorry, but no, that's, you know, popular popular misconception. And and I'm like, and and you're like, I'm really good at scaling CPG companies, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. Everybody tells me they're really good at this stuff. And I, I do remember walking the streets here in Covington, and I said, you can't help me. Yeah, I do. I'll never forget that. And I didn't really believe you. And then like the last day you give this presentation on yourself mm-hmm. and I started calling your people. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it, <laughs> now, it, it's a good, it's a good, uh, a good lesson. When you give people references, yes. you should fully expect that those references are going to be contacted cold. But now it's been fun. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a, and it was something. And I think this brings up an important point that kind of jumping all over the place, but the imposter syndrome is something that we all feel, right? And I think you know something that I felt when, because when you you know, I I was picking up what you were laying down in terms of skept being skeptical, and you know you said had said some important things that I think are relevant. That was there have been a lot of you know air quote frauds in you know that probably walk talked and looked similar to what I was saying. Right, that was the worldview that you had, and I think that that is true. Those people are everywhere, and I think you know, but. It was such, it's such an intro that's a vulnerable exercise, at least for me, when you, you know, when, when someone, and I think this is probably true for anyone doing a job reference or whatever, I think there is, you know, you, people talking about you behind your back or not behind your back, but, you know, the, the not being believed, I think, is something that struck a lot of imposter syndrome for me because I ended up having to talk to one of those references who's a very good friend of mine and, you know, and just be reminded that, holy shit, that is who you are in some in some way so it was it was a super interesting thing to look back on yeah yeah i also i like i love we talked about their day and i do like the topic of the imposter syndrome and i don't know if every founder goes through it i know i do yeah and one of the things that i've seen as a byproduct of our portfolio companies when they use the startup dna app inside of wendell is it's sort of scientific validation and they're like hey what perfect yeah. love your process because it validated that yeah. i am who i think i am totally and honestly until you brought it up to me i never really thought of it like that but just the other day we we have um, one of our seed companies that is having some success and so they're she's going to go out and and raise uh her series a with competitive term sheets and she's a woman and so I think in her mind, or maybe rightfully so, she's preparing, you know, for everything. But she calls us and says, can I share her own data profile? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, it's your data profile. Yeah, you right, can share it. right. 
But it was so important to her that it labeled her as a disruptive enterpriser yep. that she wanted to put that piece of paper as a part of her pitch deck. Yep. I thought, well, that's super interesting. And I never really thought of the genesis of that, honestly, till the other day you brought up imposter syndrome. And I forgot how uh, we all I sort of suffer from that. Yeah. And I hopefully what we're doing, I don't know, maybe that's a good byproduct. Well, I think that the exercise of raising capital, and I was having this discussion on a podcast in the West Coast, and that was – for founders, like that is the it's the same I would imagine as going to you know just going to get a mortgage loan or I, I think that the having the minute you pitch an investor, um, you are going to be forced with this thing where it's either you're good enough or not right. And I think that from an angel standpoint, an early company standpoint, that hopefully uh, with you know without biases and and sort of prejudices is an exercise of um, are you bankable or not. And that is a maddening process for anyone going through it. I mean, the, the hard, I don't think a lot of founders know this or don't re, aren't reminded that you went through and raised your own money. So I think that a lot of, there's a lot of fund managers who have actually walked some of the more difficult shoes of a founder in their own way. And I, and I think that there was, we sometimes, we founders look at an investor as a checkbook and sort of this validation point. And there isn't a lot of reverse empathy um, but for the way you guys have built it and the way that you've built it, it is literally a startup journey in its own. And oh. I think that's so important to, to get across. My first, when we were, when we, prior to Wendell and prior to our institutional fund, which we have now, when we started a, an angel group and an angel fund, my sales pitch, when you talk about being bankable, thank God, I guess I was bankable because I was a founder yep. before. But my sales pitch was, I have no idea what I'm doing, but this feels really good. And I'm going to quit my job and do this full time. Yeah. And lo and behold, that pitch worked. Yeah. And, but we didn't know what we were doing. And about 18 months, we were, we had this brilliant thesis that, you know, we're in, technically we're in Covington, Kentucky. And this is called the tri-state because, you know, we're stones throw to Indiana and, and Ohio. And the problem with Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio, going back seven years or whatever, was there's not, there wasn't a lot of venture capital private dollars. Sure. What you had was state funds or what I call these public-private partnership agencies. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is all the money is captive, which means Ohio money doesn't flow to Kentucky, and Kentucky doesn't flow to Indiana, you know, all that stuff. So we thought we were geniuses. We're like, oh, perfect. We'll just be the cherry on top of the three states. Right. We had no idea how little deal flow there was yeah, in the three states Totally. until about 18 months in. Thank God I had told everyone already I didn't know what I was doing. That way I could go back to them and say, hey, yep. we've made a mistake, and this is where we knew we need the rest of the in country, mm-hmm. you know, to where today we invest in, you know, all 50 states, Canada, and Israel. So yeah. we've, we've figured that out. But that was a that was a eye-opening and difficult process of, you know, and I pitched – Put it in perspective if you want numbers. I mean, I pitched 220, because I wrote it down, 222 investors and only got 53 of them to say yes. Wow. So I got told no 169 times or whatever that is. Sort of sucked. That's crazy. Yeah. Do you think, you know, back to the conversation, the, the walk and talk we had uh, last time I was here, do you think that Wendell, for whatever reason, and I think everybody in the investment community has certainly most of them that have been doing it a while have earned a right to be skeptical and, and sort of uh, trust, but verify in a lot of ways. Do you think that, you know, what in 
not just you, but what do you think from the investor community? What causes that sort of feeling like you've been burned before? Like what caused that in me about you or you pause of... Well, I think you could probably just hyper-generalize and say that about you, about me, but just because I think that's probably in the same vein that a lot of people go through. So my perspective is as a VC, we've heard it all before. Sure. And data is on my side to say you're full of shit. Yeah. And whether you mean to or not, maybe you don't even know you are. But that's that's the the experience. If you think about, you know, um, let's say let's say roughly, I'll, I'll put it just in kinetic terms, in actual applications. You know, over the past year or so, we're talking two thousand. That's you know that we've got documents on, and you know of the two thousand, we invested in what did I say twenty five or whatever. Yeah. So you're talking, you know, 1%. But out of the 25 that we invested in, even a large percentage of those won't be very successful. Sure. But if you look at the whole 2,000, most of them will, will not be successful. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So you got 2,000 people that are coming to you and they're like, I am disruptive. I'm going to change the game. I'm going to make yeah, you yeah. smart. No, you're not. No, you're not. <laughs> so you walk in and you've got a whole pitch deck. You're like, I am, I am this guy. I'm yeah. like, come on. No. Yeah. Let's skip to the end. You know, so... It, there's that's it and and i i think from a founder learning standpoint and maybe i didn't know this either until i got in there you know with a professional services background before this but sometimes i think founders are in their own little head and they would they could perform better when it comes to an investment you know it's just putting on the investor hat totally without any question we just started this new scout program yep. and so we've got four one, two, three, four scouts across the country, and we, they're going to have to put their investor hat on. Mm-hmm. And just the conversations we're having with them, I think they've already found value on, uh, oh, I don't wait. I don't want to use my one. Ch- I got to really think this through. You so know? you're so to, to find your scout program, you're giving them a sexually, are they choosing their own deals? Are so, they? So yeah, we walk put, me we, through that. So we put it out there. So first off, we hand selected our scouts using Wendell Startup DNA. So we were looking, and and I'm proud of this, we were looking for people that we believed are socially connected and can influence others, because then that's going to be the most successful scout program. So we looked specifically for these highly proactive social window profiles. So these are uh, accelerators, closers, and influencers. Mm-hmm. And... When we looked at who they were inside our portfolio, uh, it ended up three of them were women. Okay. And so we didn't just choose like, hey, let's just do this program for women and minorities. Um, we looked at just people to be successful. And Wendell told us who, who they were. Hmm. So so that's how we came up with our scouts. And then we asked them, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to do this? Do you want us to you know, carve out like, hey, here's a section of money and you can basically allocate it and you're like a venture partner or whatever or do you do you just want to send them through our normal process and uh, we'll validate it and, and go from there and they all unanimously said because they only get so so much they said oh no 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 we believe in this process it selected us right we're just going to send people you do you and if you fund one of our deals then give us our little marker. Interesting. It's totally. Yeah. Because I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure. But they all unanimously were like, no, nope. 
I want to make sure that my chips get allocated in in the, in the normal manner. So yeah, that's what we did. You got what what do you what I think the beauty about the idea behind Wendell is that we and I think a lot of angels have gone through this institutionalize early mid you know grow stage they they've got a, a at least a lot well at least a little bit better due diligence process so there's and then you get to the grow stage there's a lot more metrics there to see what's good and what's not but to do it in the early stage is the wild west and entrepreneurs i think and most of them the good ones anyway have a way i think they're the best they can be the best salespeople ever because they mm, genuinely believe in what they're saying whether it's right or not whether it works out the way they think or not at the moment they're presenting something that most of them are really passionate about that and so i think it's easy to fall in love with stories i think it's very easy to fall in love with sort of the ideal optimistic picture that they painted for you right and i think that you know and this is this is something where at least wendell is a neutralizer of that is to just to to funnel it through a lens um, at least as a really good starting point. Now, you guys have built a back end to it that literally kicks it out in some crazy simple terms. But I think that all founders should absolutely be thinking about things like an investor. And it's it's something that I, I didn't start out that way. Um, I started out with a you know CPG company, sold it, sold it. And then I started writing, got obsessed with the idea, not not of financing, but of the star of the founders. Were you a deal jockey? I, I was, but I was a deal junkie because I loved the reason that I'm still in it. And the reason I, I've gone through all this is because I, this is kind of my tribe of people, right? I love crazy people and I love doing things that are crazy. I love pushing the boundaries on things. And I like, that is a crowd of people that associates with me and, and by senior profile. So I know. Yeah, totally. I love that. And I think that, but it was when I, I started to learn company building in pieces and the first piece was, you know, you got to just fucking do it. I moved out to California with 6,000 bucks in my car. And the, but the second part is you start to evolve that skill set was really like, okay, I want to learn. It seemed like the stage two was really, I need to learn how financing works in companies. And I started to, I worked with a lot of founders in New York and they were really well pedigreed people. There was one thing that all of them weren't very good at and that was fundraising. And so, and, and I think that having a really advanced point of view for uh, at least for founders and spending some time to think about those things as an investor is huge because when you ask a founder and I do it all the time is you know where is the risk in your deal and they don't know i think that's a big red flag right i think at the very minimum you should know well i got uh, potentially mark you know regulation risk i've got you know possibly to you know dilution risk i've got all these different things so that you know what to go out and address to um, but that doesn't when people say I air quote can't raise money, part of me is like you didn't try the right way. You didn't explain the right story. It doesn't mean that your company you just have a dog shit company. There's a good chance that you just didn't look at it with enough of a lens to talk it back to someone who's talking about putting money in. And I think that is something that I wish we could spread that messaging around to more founders. It's important because they are investors. They absolutely are. They're, they're typically you know, work in, even if they don't put any of their own capital in, which is the way today's ventures run, but they typically are working for less wages than they could go out and get in a corporate environment yep. and almost never have a 401k plan or maybe not even, you know, traditional health and other other type of benefits. So they're investing, if they would look at their, their corporate wage and benefit banking and they started to realize 
oh, I'm putting $100,000 a year in this company. I'm the largest investor. Of course, that's why they get their equity. But thinking you know, through how do I build my team or what what is it exactly that gets me excited about this or what risks have my inner circle, my spouse or whatever brought up to me that maybe yeah. the investors uh, are thinking? Because your point's well taken is if if you take if you're in a, if you're a founder and you articulate throw all the bricks at your own house mm-hmm. and you don't leave me anything else to throw at it I like it I totally. like it oh, right yeah. you know you've shown me you totally. really know your business and uh, there's but if you let me every investor will find weaknesses uh, uh, so 100%. don't let me say them just don't just say them before I get to them well it's so funny to hear that because the the mission the kind of the messaging I have uh, back in the Boise area and, and sort of the broader sort of flyover area before the coast is you know uh, when I'm mentoring people or working with people or or pitching something myself like you always hear me in the first two minutes lead with what I perceive as the top four risks right off the bat and it's crazy to watch that hit a founder that doesn't hasn't thought about that before because they're like, why that's negative, and I don't want to, I don't want this to be negative. Like I'm trying to, you know, I guess they don't realize that what I'm doing is one, I'm showing you the investor that I have a handle on at least the broader risks, and two, I'm taking every bullet out of your gun because then when I don't have you thinking about market timing and capital, you know, all the different three, four, five top risks, now you can listen to me, right? You can, else li- that good. you can listen to me from that point on. You're not trying to think about how I'm going to how I'm going to screw you over. Well, you can't say risk without reward, right? I like that one. Yeah, well, I, I think yeah, yeah. You know the the deal junkies or the gamblers. Yep. they want risk. Yep. <laughs> if your deal's too safe, literally. So I have a buddy of mine. He's a he's a great entrepreneur. He's taken over a, a small logistics company and he's turned it into quite a big one. And when I when I was, you know, presenting, you know, one of my opportunities, he literally just said, Brad, it's just not risky enough. Wow. I, I need something, you know, yeah. that's scary. And so that that neuro, you know, partnership between risk and reward, I think there's a flip side little bit of magic is saying, let me tell you all the risks. Yeah. And the investor's thinking, ooh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a potential big reward because that's what they want. Yeah, whether or not it... Uh, going through, you know, when I joined up with Lewis at Killer Creamery and, and really coming in as a catalyst to scale, um, it was a company that was doing, that was on a really great trend and a really top integrity founder, food scientist. But like a lot of flyover founders, I think, and a quali- I qualify, qualify flyover founders as sort of living uh, not with a lot of proximity to institutional capital. So they don't, they, they don't see the scouts and they don't, you know, a lot of them read TechCrunch and and in TechCrunch and Recode, we really talk about how beautiful and sexy is raising money. And the reality of that is very different if you've ever been on the other side of a high growth company that raises venture dollars and in two years from your big A round, they're not in, they're not in business anymore. But I think that trying to get flyover founders um, to think like an investor and to execute like one changes the game, changes the way that, you know, as a Founders that call themselves CEOs better know how to allocate capital, right? They better know how to raise it, better know how to allocate it. And I think that that was something when we started the last round was when I started the pitch, actually pitch for the company was his face almost dropped when I was like, look, I think our risks is we got a competition risk. We got, you know, we've got potentially a dilution risk if this gets to this, this and this. And, and when, but when we oversubscribed the round, 
like there was a, there was a correlation to at, at the very least someone on the team having a very if not a, uh, an incredibly good insight into investing right because i'm t- i'm talking to an investor but yeah to your point I, the risk were up front and i wonder yeah i wonder how much uh, the gambler that brought out yeah t- i totally i the um, i'm trying to think you know when we started talking about you know killer creating i mean for us you know getting the getting the team and your place on the team you know inside of Wendell and getting your buy-in with you've got a track record that's really good personally and so for us that brought us a comfort level to we're we're venture capital firm like we we learned that we like risk we yeah we want it we want to take that risk but putting that tool in your hand uh on a company that we understood the space really well yeah uh, was is uh, was a super is a super interesting you know product and you know I think the biggest risk that other investors might see in in that company is oh you know this ice cream market is really small yeah well maybe but let me tell you the like novelty market's really Huge. big and on trend yeah so do we have scientific risk and can we create products to come down like a pipeline company mm-hmm. and make it really big I don't know it's risk but if we can. It's huge reward, right? It's huge. So we thought about that the whole time, and we're like, "Yeah, why not? This is cool. Let's 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 take this swing." So that's just a good one to think about. It's been a great exercise. I think uh, you know, I guess forty-five minutes. Why? Why should founders? You know, if we talk about the flyover founders that are a little bit jaded, if not a lot jaded, because other people have raised money and they read about raising money, and I think. Most of them are not good. And to be fair, if your mom or your parents didn't bring you up showing you how to raise money for Red Cross or you know, Jump Rope for Heart or something, uh, raising money is a very counterintuitive thing. And it really strikes at a lot of the emotional and you know, and sort of little trauma points in everyone's life because you're technically asking for something and money and money has a weird way of doing that. But I would say, why why should the this founder, um, what are they going to find when they come to Kinetic? I mean, post-Wendell. I mean, really, that experience. What you know? What is what is when? What does a kinetic on the cap table look like? A trusted advisor. So, we've for right or wrong for now, for most of the portfolio companies, we've chosen actually not to take a board seat, and we find that the relationship between founder and executive company team is a little bit different. You know, when they're just texting you or picking up the phone and they're like, I'm stressed about this or what do you think of this? I mean, my my phone. So, for example, I'll just tell you about me as as co-founder, managing partner, Kinetic. I'm not a part of the front end deal flow. So you don't need to email me or whatever. But I am a part of our portfolio companies where we open that network or if you need a trusted advisor. And we've got uh, founders, 90 percent of them would line up and be like, yep, that's that's our exact experience. So I think being that trusted advisor, us opening up at networks, a safe place to pitch your mm-hmm. next idea. Right. Right. A uh, safe place to, um, we know all kinds of stuff. Like I got a deal right now that we've been invested in and we are looking at acquiring another company while I'm on the deal team. Right. So we, we do uh, a lot of financing stuff when it, when it comes to diligence that maybe our founders are product people or software yeah. people. And they just, you know, struggle to data room. So we, we do all that, but we'll roll up our sleeves. We had one company that landed this um, awesome I'm gonna sales partnership. And at the time, we had one salesperson 
to do inbound demos of the SaaS product that we had. And we had this one sort of, uh, where they had had something crazy, like five or 600 people sign up. Literally, you know, the founder had to call its investors and say, will you take inbound demos? Hmm. I said, sure. Yeah. Sure. Show me like the three things. I just need to show them and I'll basically take their name and contact, show them three things and, and we'll go from there. So I guess what wouldn't we do sure. for our portfolio companies? We have... We have a lot of great investors at Killer Creamery. In fact, we're really proud of the cap table that we've built and, and the board that we've built. But I can tell you that we, coming from Boise, Idaho... Well, where's, ha- where's the founder right now of Killer Creamery? He's, he's, doing, he's out doing the hard work with Kroger and, and through con- contacts that you gave us. And I, what I'm trying to set up is that we have found a, a bit of a second home here. And it was in, in a Kroger and, and sort of the, the broader retail landscape here is, is definitely part of it. But I think we have found a home, a second home in your boardroom and just the generosity and sort of and just letting us come in and, and sitting with us and talking through different ideas, A rounds and, and making calls on our behalf. Like for, for someone who's not on the board, a very much a participating investor in the last round, um, you know, we feel I can easily say we feel at least 10x the love per the investment. And I know we're not one of your biggest, you know, your first biggest investments. So I think that says, you know, that, that's genuinely how we feel and genuinely why we're here for the, I'm here for the third time in six months during COVID. Let's be honest. I invite you back because you bring me ice cream. Bring you ice cream. <laughs> tomorrow is uh, a big day. Tomorrow's a big day. Yeah. Tomorrow's a big day. Well, I think, you know, I think as you go on, I, I just, yeah, I, the connection that you guys have an, a really uncanny ability to keep connection with your founders. I think that above a lot of venture capital shops, you are principled, old school, natured investors. And I think that as much and it's funny that you're on the leading edge of innovation with that, right? I think that's an in, interesting dynamic. But I think that for the flyover founders and from where we live or for anyone else that doesn't have proximity to the big VC funds and, and believes in you know, and we're, we're kind of raised with a set of values that would lead you to also be sort of principled and a little bit old school in nature. Um, but, you know, going through your exercise, Wendell, and, and, you know, hopefully landing you on the cap table is something that will be beneficial to everybody. Yeah, I mean, we hope to do more for all founders. You know, right now, unfortunately, we, you know, write checks to roughly 1%. But a byproduct of the more companies that would come spend 25 minutes of their life which is a hell of a lot shorter than a coffee meeting or a beer or, a, you know, a formalized yeah. you know meeting or whatever. But as we get better at our craft, then we have every intention of giving all that information back to founders mm-hmm. so that the value proposition is come talk to Wendell and let Wendell tell you a few things about your company based on actual data and other founder outcomes. Yeah. You know, that's that's truth, you know, steeped in data. We're, we're not there yet. We don't have enough outcomes to be able to provide that feedback to founders in a manner that we think would be beneficial. But we can help you build your team right now. Absolutely. And that's something we do them better than anybody. You guys are you guys are definitely on the road. And I think, like we started the conversation with, I, I think that the disruption in VC probably won't come from the big VC markets um, because it very much takes an outsider to look inside of that ecosystem and say, and from an outsider perspective that aren't living, you know, knee deep in the valley is to, and to, to figure out solutions to the problems that you perceive from the outside. And I think that's why Covington, Kentucky is is every bit of a good place to do that and, and disrupt the whole thing as, you know, Menlo Park. Wouldn't that be hilarious if venture capital is disrupted from Kentucky? 
Well, I mean, you could argue that you did, you know, you had the original Moneyball algorithm and you've done it once. You may just finish this one off and, uh, and I'm sure someone will commercialize this one. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so.